So our church is a church I have been hoping for for a long time. Amen. Amen. And um, we started, Inez and Bobby started this series some time ago. And when I heard of what it was, I thought, oh, God, that's going to be good. The Rhythms of Justice. And so far, we've had six Rhythms of Justice. I'm just going to review. For those people who haven't been here, I'm going to review so you know what you missed. Anyway, Pastor Inez started out with the Rhythm of Joy that brought the Magi to Jesus. That was powerful. Then Bobby came, and he brought us the Rhythm of Justice that allows us to call out to God in desperation. Then Pastor said, uh-uh. She came with the rhythm of courage that gives us the holy boldness to demand justice. Then we had this visitor. <laughs> Pastor Manny. And Pastor Manny took us to the book of Revelation and to our present-day Patmos, where we worship with tears and the rhythm of tension. I don't know what happened that week. I, can't, I was trying to remember, but some tragedy had happened. It had us all upset. Then Pastor Bobby came back. He would not be outdone. And he gave us another perspective of the burning bush, where God is on fire. No, no, God is not on fire. God is incensed because of the injustices done to his people. Then last week, Pastor Inez said, well, I'm going to double down. <laughs> and, and she brought us back to joy, where rewilded or restored to joy is something that we need to do the work of justice. Now, this is the last Sunday of black history. And if you haven't noticed, I'm black. And, amen, and the word that I'm bringing to you today, it has a teacher component because I'm a teacher. Then it's got a preacher component. So don't y'all fall asleep during the teacher component and stick around for the preaching component. Can we do that? Can I hear you say amen? Okay. So, Lord, let me just pray one minute. Lord, I ask that you will illuminate our minds so that we will receive wisdom and understanding. Illuminate our eyes so that we might see you in the word. And Lord God, please illuminate our hearts that we will receive the blessing that you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Like the song says, that we just sang says, God made me. He made me who I am. And contrary to some people's opinion, God doesn't make junk. Hello. Anyone who dares to despise or hate God's creation also criticizes his very intent and purpose for that creation. Y'all hear me? Okay, I like to know you hear me now. Okay, I'm going to make y'all into a black Baptist church yet. Okay, so... <laughs> So let's look at Isaiah 45.9, please, Patrick. And I found a version I've never seen before. It's called the ERV. How many of y'all seen that? It's called the e easy-to-read version. I think they just made it up, but it's good. Okay? 
So it reads like this. Look at these people. They are arguing with the one who made them. Look at them argue with me. They are like pieces of clay from a broken pot. Clay does not say to the one molding it, man, what are you doing? Things that are made don't have the power to question the one who makes them. In other words, the nerve of people who dare to criticize how God made me when they themselves are also made by him. We are all broken vessels waiting for God to make something beautiful out of us. Not one of us is a finished work. I know you think you are. But not one of us is a finished work. In order to grow closer to God, we must replace hate with love and anger with kindness. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. Now, I'm getting ready to tell y'all a little secret. For almost 74 years, that's me, people have hated me because of the color of my skin. The skin color that was given to me by my father, the creator. I never understood the hate and animosity directed towards me because I'm a brown girl. As a child, I wondered if the hate would ever go away. Then one day, not too long ago, I was watching the news and I heard the words critical race theory. Now don't y'all throw nothing at me now, okay? <laughs> let me talk, let me have my peace, let me have my say, okay? Patrick, I love this mic, but it's not staying on my ear. Can, I, can you change it for me, please? Like, oh, but you, you're on the front row. You know you're the quitter. Okay, critical race theory. It was all the talk on every TV news channel I turned to, and it seemed to make a lot of white people angry. CRT was being demonized by pundits, politicians, and even anchors because they said it made white children feel bad and or guilty. When something makes that much noise, it grabs my attention. And when it grabs my attention, I have to research it for myself. Here's what I found out. Now, y'all might not agree with me, but here's what I found out. CRT, I'm just going to shorten it, is merely an academic and legal framework that explains the causality of racism and injustice in America. It also tells us why it still exists. CRT posits that systemic or institutionalized racism is an integral part of American society and impacts nearly every facet of life for people of color. Injustice manifests as discrimination in areas such as criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, education, and political representation. Activists and advocates of CRT agree that 
there's a lot more work that needs to be done to dismantle injustice because racism is more, it's far more. Oh, oh I lost my place. <laughs> Wait a minute. Because racism is more than the result of just one person's individual bias and prejudice. CRT espouses that racism in America has been embedded in laws, embedded in policies, embedded in institutions that uphold and support racial inequalities, that uh, uphold and support injustice. CRT exposes how our government systems and laws have impacted and affected the lives of millions of marginalized people, marginalized people, especially people that look like me, people who are black. These racist ideologies stood the test of time because they were shrouded, wrapped up in legal systems. So CRT should not be demonized because it actually gives credence to my American history. Yeah. Hello. Most of you know that I grew up in the South. What you may not know is that I actually experienced many of the systemic racial systems explained by CRT. That's how I know it's credible. I lived it. That's why when I go to the African American Museum in Washington, DC, it's a time of reflection because black folks have endured much, but the struggle continues. Let's take a look at some of the causalities of CRT that I lived through. Can we do that? Y'all okay? All right. First, we talk about segregation. Segregation was the rule of law in New Orleans. I went to segregated schools that were separate but unequal. I had great black teachers, the best teachers in the world, and administrators. But our textbooks were always outdated, and our buildings were always inferior. Why? Because we only got new books when the white schools got new books. We only got the buildings when they abandoned them and built new schools, and then we got the buildings. Even the Catholic church, I was Catholic once upon a time, even the Catholic church I attended was segregated. My church was all black except for the priests. It was not uncommon to come into my church on a rainy Sunday and see umbrellas open up while we in church because the roof leaked. However, on that very same street, there were two white churches on the same street in either direction that were sound, rainproof edifices. Jim Crow, I'm sorry, Jim Crow, was a law that enforced racial seg segregation from water fountains to swimming pools. Instead of looking for the union label, anybody know what that means? None of y'all? There was a little jingle that used to say, look for the union label so that you buy American, right? Hold on, I'm sorry, I'm dry mouth. It said, look for the, un the, the union label. But I was taught as a kid to look for the colored signs. I only drank colored water in public places. I later learned that white water 
tasted just like colored water. Because my oldest brother decided one day we were in Sears Roebuck, he's gonna defy the, the security guard and drink out of the white water fountain. And then he says to me, hey sis, guess what? White water tastes just like colored water. I was scared to death because I'm thinking we better start running, okay? When I was eight years old, I had to give up my seat to a white man because there were no more seats in the little small white section on the bus. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I wasn't like Rosa Parks. I got up and moved the color sign to a seat behind him so I could sit down. It, wasn't, it was against the law for us to sit homogeneously. Can you believe that? That's such a stupid thing. Jim Crow didn't end until 1965 when I was in high school. That's amazing. And some of y'all have no idea how that might even look. There was also a lynch law which gave private and authorized citizens the right to inflict punishment on blacks. In addition to lynching, black people endured a plethora of atrocities to their body, mind, and spirit. Unfortunately, there was no federal law that pursued the perpetrators of a lynch mob. State and local governments, especially even in New Orleans, often looked the other way allowing the perpetrators to go unpunished. I was six years old in 1955 when 14-year-old Emmett, Emmett Till was beaten and hung because he allegedly offended a white woman. His mother insisted on an open casket for the world to see his disfigured body. She wanted them to see how ugly injustice really was. The men who committed that, those, that horrible, horrific crime, they didn't even spend one day in jail. You wouldn't think that lynching was way in the past once I became an adult. The last reported lynching that I know of was in Mobile, Alabama in 1981. At that time, I was a homemaker, a mother, had three kids, no, four kids, and one on the way. And there was a lynching. Can you imagine my heart? Can you imagine how I felt thinking that that could be my kid? Most lynchings were still not reported. There's a deeply moving architectural memorial done by the Equal Justice Institute. Sarah D. and I went there. It's in Montgomery, Alabama. It forces us to confront our history so we can move forward towards healing. The architecture displays the basis barbarism inflicted on over 4,400 people who were reportedly lynched in America. In 2018, now, I'm not too fond of this person. Don't hold it against me. But in 2018, Mitch McConnell's Senate finally passed anti-lynching legislation, but it died in the House of Representatives. Who would not want to die such a barbaric practice? 
Finally, though, last year in March, Joe Biden signed into law lynching legislation that made lynching a hate crime. So now it's a federal law. Ain't nobody can keep, can't keep turning those heads. The system that I'm mostly concerned with today, though, y'all, is voter suppression. When I was a kid in Louisiana, it's going to sound crazy, but I thought it was crazy. When I was a kid in Louisiana, those in power made silly laws to keep people from voting, such as reciting the United States Constitution. Who can do that? Guessing the correct number of jelly beans in a jar. Come on. Mind you, only blacks were made to participate in these fiascos. My sister-in-law, Luella, <laughs> she laughs because she said when she went to vote, she put Negro on the card as her race instead of color, and the lady told her she wasn't going to take it. She had to go back home and come back tomorrow. She said she went outside, walked around the block, and came back in, and the lady didn't even recognize her. Is it true we all look alike? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank God we are no longer required to know how many bubbles a bar of soap makes to become a registered voter. That happened in Louisiana. But voter suppression didn't stop there. Today, legislators have developed more sophisticated voter suppression strategies that have replaced the old. Tactics like gerrymandering and redistricting, which are used to weaken the minority vote and minimize their representation. I see you shaking your head over there, brother. You with me. This is a history we don't want to repeat people. For the most part, we live in the moment, and it's easy to be blinded and not see how old systems. Oh, that's my niece, Jamelda. I'm sorry. I'm going to hang up on her. <laughs> Call me in the middle of my sermon, girl. Okay. <laughs> we live in the moment, and it's easy to be blinded and not see how old systems continue continue as they are morphed into new laws. Racism and injustice are alive and well, folks. As a matter of fact, racist ideologies have picked up fury over the last six years. No kidding. Seriously. I'm having deja vu with the passing of new voter suppression laws whose intent is to diminish the right to vote. Not to mention the growing number of state edicts established to eradicate black history in academia. Now, I brought this up because Bobby opened the door last time when he was talking about, do you remember, talking about DeSantis trying to keep folks from teaching black history? So, <laughs> it made me think about when I was a classroom teacher. And uh, my students would come sometimes and say, Ms. Haskett, there's no racism in America. And I would say, yes, there is. And they go, no, Ms. Haskett, there's no racism in America. And I would tell them, just because you don't see that glass ceiling doesn't mean you're, going, you're not going to bump your head on it when, as you go up. Okay? Because they didn't, they, they're not born with racist hearts. And some of them have never even been discriminated against, especially here in California. 
They only know racism if they are taught to hate, or as I did, by having an encounter with some white kids who let me see racism rear its ugly head. It was frightening. Last week, my number three daughter, Jantre, took me to meet Ruby Bridges. Patrick, you wanna put that painting up? I forgot it. Now, Ruby Bridges is from New Orleans, and I know some of her family. I was 10 years old when Ruby was six, and she integrated France Elementary School. She was escorted by U.S. Marshals. Now, Ruby told this story, and it's funny, because we're from New Orleans, you know we had Mardi Gras, we just had it. Well, Ruby, she said, as she was going up the sidewalk to enter into the school, the white folks were throwing stuff and yelling and screaming. And Ruby said she thought it was Mardi Gras. <laughs> True story. Did she say it, John Trent? Okay. <laughs> now, that painting, I, I'm a, this is a sidebar. I know you know Norman Rockwell, right? Oh, please tell me y'all know him. Don't make me feel so old. <laughs> Norman Rockwell painted for the Washington Post. He did this painting when Ruby integrated France Elementary School, but Washington Post wouldn't put it, they wouldn't publish it. It wasn't until 17 years later when some guy came to interview Ruby and he pulled out that painting, the picture of the painting, and she, he said, that's you. For all that time, this woman had thought that that was all a dream. If you saw the movie Ruby Bridges, it was a nightmare, right? How many of you seen, saw that movie? Anybody saw the movie? You ought to go look it up on, on Netflix, I think. Now, the history of racial injustice is a real part of American history and should be included it really should include the histories of all those who make up America's totality. We're not a melting pot because that would signify wholeness and unity. What we are is many, and all of our histories are distinct. I told some of you the story before uh, how the Chinese immigrants, they did the brunt of the work in building the Transcontinental Railroad. They made up 75% of the workforce. They endured hardships because they had to sleep in tents on the ground while everybody else slept in the, in the train cars. And when it came time for them to <clears throat> do the big golden spike ceremony, they were excluded. If you don't believe me, just look it up on the internet. You will not see one Asian face in that whole milieu of folks. Now, they were erased from that historical visual print. It wasn't until 150 years later, in 2019, that the descendants of these forgotten laborers gathered to retake that photograph in honor of those who helped to make America great. Come on, that's good, absolutely. Today, Racial injustice is on steroids by the rise of, mostly fueled by the rise of domestic terrorism. 
Who would have ever thought that I would see a Confederate flag flying in the U.S. Capitol? That very flag that was used in my childhood to instill fear and to remind me that I was inferior and only three-fifths of a person. I was horrified when I saw it being carried by the violent people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. For way too long, America has done very little to address the evils of injustice, like that flag and the monuments that celebrated the seditionist men who lost the Civil War. No, they didn't win it. They lost the Civil War. Now, today, state legislators, in order to make their America great again, they want us not to let children know about my history. Do those in power not understand that what is done to the least of these is affected by all of these? It's getting crazy as people in power attack teaching the history of black people. They're going full throttle to eradicate and ban books and curriculum that even mention the history of racism and injustice in America. It is sad to say that some of these people profess to know Jesus, but do they know his heart? These are the same folks who want to teach that America was born perfect. We all know better than that, right? They contend that children should not be taught the history of racism and injustice in America because it makes white students feel bad. Well, look at me. I'm not Chinese. But I felt bad when I read how Chinese immigrants were treated during the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. I felt bad that their work conditions and pay were pitiful of what their white counterparts had. It made me sick to my heart when I went down to the Museum of Tolerance and I saw how the Japanese Americans rounded up and interred. And they hadn't done anything but live in America. Church, reading the histories of other minorities helps me to understand their struggle and admire how they continue to persevere. Reading my history shows how black people survive and maintain their dignity and humanity despite brutal hardships and racial terror. Brian Stevenson, I know a girl who wants to marry him, but he said he can't marry with, because of the kind of work he does. Brian Stevenson, y'all see the movie? What's the movie? You remember the book? Just Say it free. Just mercy. He is also the founder of the Equal Justice Institute and Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. To overcome racial equality, he said, we must confront our history, not erase it. Come on, y'all. All right? I need some more water. Back in the 80s, I'm giving y'all too much. Y'all be okay? Okay. Back in the 80s, my family and I used to attend a church in Louisville, Georgia. Y'all remember that, girls? 
Uh, and every Sunday, because it was so far from my house, we would just stay there and have dinner in Louisville. We would always have to pass downtown, and in the center of downtown was a slave auction block that the city man maintained. Yeah. It, it maintained it to remind them that when America was great and cotton was king. During that time, slaves were considered chattel. You know what that is, property. To be bought and sold because they were only three-fifths human. It's true. The equation was that for every five slaves, only three would be counted for taxation and representation purposes for the electoral college. Yet, they could be counted, but they still couldn't vote. I'm convinced that those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I want to remember my past. My past is a part of American history. My past is American history. As a black woman, I feel that if you erase or deny my historical journey, then you erase and deny me as a contributing member of society. I am the product of my past, my present, and my future. I know that my footsteps are ordered by the Lord, and where my feet are planted, that is where I'm supposed to be. Guess what? I know that God made me a black woman with the mind of Christ. I'm grateful. He could have made me Judas. Somebody had to be him. Hello. Can I get an amen? All right. I am confident that the Lord is holding my hand throughout my journey of life. God made me a black woman with the mind of Christ. The Lord has pulled me out of some tough spots, y'all. So you say, well, Glenda, what does all this have to do with obedience and the rhythm as a rhythm of justice? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because <laughs> here comes the preacher. Here comes the preacher. <laughs> obedience, if we look up the definition of obedience, it's the submission to another's authority. I, you, we all want to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? All right. That's our ultimate submission. Not to, I don't have one, but not to my husband. If I had one, I'd have to put Jesus before him. He'd be the only man before him. Okay? Yeah. One of my favorite, when I'm studying the Bible in the morning, my grandkids sometimes, they come and they wonder what I'm laughing about. Because I be having a good time. Okay. One of my favorite, I call them Jesus dropping the, drop the mic segments. Okay. It's found in John 6, 53 through 56. Patrick, you got it up there? Okay, thank you. I'm reading from the Berean Study Bible. You know, one of the greatest things that I could put on my phone, two of them, was that Holy Bible, that little brown one, and um, what's that other one called? With the blue and the white? Bible Hub, okay? If y'all don't have it, 
get those. Because when you don't understand one version, you can just flip over to another. There's something in there for everybody. Anyway, John 6, 51 through 53 reads, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this bread, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. At this, the Jews began to argue among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. You want me to repeat that? If you don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 56, this is the key verse. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Boom, drop the mic, Jesus. <laughs> Amen? Jesus declared that he was the living bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. Anyone, anyone who eats this bread will live forever because the bread was his flesh. He further iterated that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood will remain in him and he would be in them. Upon hearing this, the disciples wondered, how can anyone obey this command? This was a hard request, a very hard request to obey because it was against the law for Jews to even eat a juicy, rare steak. Eating blood was a no-no. Did not God say, next slide please, in Leviticus 17, 14, the life of all flesh is his blood. You must not eat the blood of any living thing because the life of all flesh is in his blood. Whoever eats it must be cut off. Now, the Jews understood this Levitical command that if something was alive, it was because of the warm blood flowing through its veins. Upon hearing this, many of his disciples left. So Jesus looked at Peter, and I love me some Peter. Jesus looked at Peter and asked him if he wanted to go and leave as well. And Peter said, Lord, where am I going to go? Jesus today is asking us, do we want to go or to remain in him? Remember the key phrase of this passage, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood remains in him and abides in him. We do this every Sunday symbolically, correct? But because communion reminds us that we can strive to be obedient to what he has asked us to do. Even when we miss the mark and disobey, Jesus provides an escape for us through forgiveness so we can renew our commitment to the cross. He's faithful and just to forgive us and restore us to righteousness. Abiding in this knowledge of Christ heightens our desire to please and serve him. When we acknowledge that he's the most high God and he sits on a throne that is upheld by righteousness and justice, we are inspired to walk, to walk in love and mercy. 
Let's look at Psalm 89, 13, 14. I'm almost there. I'm almost done. Hang in there with me. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and kindness and truth go before you. Church, we are God's people. He is in us. We are the carriers of love and mercy, which we give to others because of our love for him. If the scriptures are true, then there's nothing created that was not created by him. Therefore, all mankind, all races were created by the almighty God. Therefore, those who are made don't have the power to question the one who makes them. Nor do we have the power to override God's command to love one another. This leads me to this question. Why do people criticize how God made Glendive when they themselves are also one of his creations? Our reasonable service to the Lord is to treat others justly with the love of God and mercy that he has given us. Justice was so important to Jesus that he gave his life for the world, for all races, so that anyone who receives him can experience eternal life with him. Matthew 28, 20 tells us to teach the nations or races what he taught us to do, which is to love God and to love our neighbor. We are not obeying if we only teach and love people who look like us. When the disciples asked Christ, what is the greatest command? Do you remember what he said? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Forget Levitical law. Forget, don't get mad with me, forget Mosaic law. This is God's law for his people. To replace hate with love and anger with kindness. Because in doing so, you'll draw closer to God and notice more peace in your life. If you only like people who look like you, then you're leaving a whole lot of people behind. Contrary to popular opinion, heaven is not going to be compartmentalized by race or gender. So we might as well put aside our prejudices and start loving all people. We're not like the world. The world lies in darkness and death because it rebels against God. The world has no contact with the one source of life and light which is Jesus. Jesus is the light that brings light and life back to the world and sets it free from bondage of sin. Amen? Amen. We are in the world. You've heard this. We say it all the time. We're in the world, but we are not what? Of this world. We are the light of the world. Why? Because the light is in us. The religion of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way. When God says he is love and those that don't love others don't love him, you can take that to the bank. 
We all, every last one of us, have to work on our prejudices and biases. It's not just white people that have prejudices and biases. Latino people have prejudices and biases. Asian people, who else? Black people. Black people. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we all have to work on it. Church racism and injustice towards others is evil, and it is sin to hate. Now, I don't want anybody to get mad with me, because this is not a condemnation message directed at anyone in this church, because y'all are family. It is a message from which we acquire knowledge to share with others who say they love God or are intolerant of people based on ethnicity, age, sex, or disability. We, the children of the light of Jesus, are required to illuminate the world with a light of truth and justice because they are the pillars of foundation in which God's throne sits. As United States Representative John Lewis used to say, if you know something, say something. We must be mindful not to be complicit in doing the devil's work. We must be mindful to be complicit in doing the right, just, and kind thing that Jesus has directed us to. Can I hear you say amen and thank God because I'm through. Thank you. Y'all too kind. <laughs> Y'all just trying to get my MasterCard, huh? <laughs> Thank you, Mother Glendar, for that living history lesson that you gave us. A living history, you're a living ancestor. You also gave witness to the God of that history and to the Jesus of that history and how your story fits in your story. So we honor you today, we truly do. Thank you for educating us and uh, grounding us in the work of Christ. Thank you for that rhythm of obedience. What I heard, not only did I hear a rhythm of obedience as a rhythm of justice, but a rhythm of obedience and remembering, because it's important to remember, and not only remember, but remember the truth. Because if we don't confess the sins of racism, personal and systemic, then we can't heal from the sins of racism, personal and systemic. I'm gonna get out of the way because I might start preaching. <laughs> but I want to honor the living history and and the rhythm of obedience. So thank you for giving us this living word. I hope it stays seated in our souls. And so as we could continue in worship and we continue preparing our hearts to come to this table, I am reminded that on the night that Jesus 
uh, was betrayed in the night before he died for the sins of racism. I'm remembering um, the sins of personal and systemic racism that afflicted and affected black bodies as you gave us witness to. And I'm thankful for the bread that was broken. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, tomó pan y dio gracias y dijo, este es mi cuerpo que por ustedes es partido. Hagan esto en memoria de mí. Y después de haber cenado, tomó también la copa en su sangre y dijo, esta es la copa, este es el pacto de mi sangre. Cada vez que beban esta copa y cada vez que coman este pan, Recuerdan la muerte del Señor hasta que Él venga. And so, God, we do remember that we come to this table, and in this moment, I'm just glad that this church is not segregated. After the sermon that we just heard, God, I thank you, Jesus, for not only the work on the cross, but the work of our living and dead ancestors who worked so that we could come here together. Thank you, God, that we don't have umbrellas to hold, <laughs> that the roof is not leaking. But I do thank you that as we come to this table, we come to a heaven that is not segregated, and we don't have to wait to heaven, but we can live this heaven now. And so, God, I thank you for your blood, and I thank you for your body that was broken for us to heal us personally and also systemically. And so as we prepare our hearts, we prepare the bodies and we honor the bodies that bring whole entire stories to this table. And we say thank you, Jesus, for being the blood that washes our sins, personal and systemic. And for the body that understands is well acquainted with the grief of marginalized bodies as well. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you get us. And we love you and we celebrate and come to this table of communion as an act of obedience and an act of worship. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'd like to invite Shirley to come forward and Mother Glendar to come forward. And whenever you all are ready, they will be holding um, the elements. If you will come up and receive the elements and take them back to your seat, and we will take them all together. Thank you, Shirley, and thank you, Mother Glendar. 